so like any good preacher, Jesus, as he comes to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, he ends with a good story. But this is not the kind of story where everything gets wrapped up in a neat bow and where we all feel good. This is a story with a bite. It's got an edge to it. And if you grew up in church, this is a familiar story. It's the story of the two houses, the one built on the rock and the one built on the sand. But even if you're not a Jesus follower, if the Bible is new to you, you can get the meaning of this story, right? And the big idea that Jesus has got for us in this story is very simple. Never build until you know what will knock down what you build. Never build until you know what's going to knock down what you're building because that will tell you how to build what you want to build. Now, even though we know this with our hits, the truth is a lot of us, we build our lives, our relationships, our families, our careers, and we never stop to think about a storm. We never stop to think, well, what could destroy everything I'm trying to accomplish? Now, Jesus points out a very obvious truth. And the obvious truth is, storms are certain. Preparation is optional. Nobody lives a trouble-free life, right? Nobody gets a trouble-free life. The, tr the truth is that everybody is going to lose somebody they love. Every one of you is going to encounter something where you thought you were successful and you fail. Every one of us is going to have a limitation where we can't do something well or can't do something as well as somebody else. Every one of us is going to try and we're going to fail at something and then we're going to feel guilty about it. Storms come. Preparation's optional. So what are you trying to build? Are you prepared for the storm? So let's dive in and see what Jesus has to tell us. And he starts out very clearly Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, which means as soon as we read that, we pause and we say, well, okay, what words? What words of Jesus are we talking about? And this is easy because he's doing the Sermon on the Mount. The words of the Sermon on the Mount is what Jesus is talking about. So we need to pause before we go any further and figure out what's the Sermon on the Mount all about. And I could sum up the Sermon on the Mount this way. Religion doesn't equal relationship with God. You can go through all the religious motions, you can have some sort of religious understanding, but that doesn't mean you have a relationship with God. And for example, let's look how Jesus starts the sermon. He starts it with the Beatitudes, and you probably have heard these, whether you're a church person or not. Very first thing he says is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now we, we, we hear that and we go, okay. We don't hear how radical that was in Jesus' time because Jesus grew up in this incredibly religious culture where there were a lot of rules, a lot of expectations. Some of it is based on the Old Testament, but about two-thirds of it is found in what is known as the Mishnah or the Midrash, which is the interpretation of the Old Testament. So you had all these systems of rules and regulations to keep you from breaking the rules. For example, the Bible says you shall not Labor on the Sabbath, you've all heard that one. But then the next question is, just what is labor? And so they actually had a rule. You couldn't leave a radish in the salt overnight because the radish would pickle and that was work on the Sabbath. Does that sound a little obsessive compulsive to you? Maybe just a little bit. Or for example, 
you'll see how unfair the law was. Uh, if you touch anything that's dead, you are unclean. Sometimes you're unclean for a day, sometimes for seven days. So, let's say that you're a regular person, right? Regular person, you go out, milk the cow in the morning, the cow's dead. What do you do? Well, you don't milk it, right? Number two, you've got to figure out how to get the dead cow out of the barn, which means you have to touch it with a rope, tie it around your mule, haul it off. Now, if you're rich, what do you do? You have your servant do it. If you are a Pharisee, well, you don't even have to deal with cows because you're getting paid to be good. You hear how unfair this is? It sets up regular people to be failures. It sets up regular people to feel like they can never be good enough to have their own relationship with God. It means you have to be either really wealthy or a religious elitist to have a healthy relationship with God. And Jesus said it doesn't work like that. You've got to actually start by knowing you're poor in spirit, you are helpless, and so you can go to God and say, you know, I'm not doing real good at being good all on my own. God, I'm helpless. That's where a relationship with God starts, acknowledging you've got spiritual poverty that you can't overcome. Hear how radical that is? Now, Jesus goes on, and he says, okay, so you've got to pay attention to what I say, and then you actually have to do it. And that's really what the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's all about this thing of, okay, change the way you understand your behavior, your heart. It's what's inside that counts, not just externals. Jesus said, you've heard it said of old, don't murder. And, and we can pause right there and go, okay, I got that. I haven't killed anybody today. I'm good. Then Jesus goes on, he says, but I tell you, don't hate. Now, I know, we're church people. We don't hate. None of you would hate anybody, right? Instead, we have church code. We don't hate people. We pray for them. We don't hate people. We just say, bless your heart. Right? Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say, don't lust. And so a lot of us want to go, are you kidding me, Jesus? Don't lust? Jesus said, you've heard it said, only divorce for a legal, uh, legally. Uh, don't do abandonment, just divorce legally. But I say to you, don't divorce at all except if the vow's already been broken. Well, Jesus, that means marriage isn't a transaction. Marriage is a commitment, it's a journey. You hear how radically different this is? And then, and then in chapter six, Jesus starts changing our ideas about things like prayer and giving and fasting. He says, it's not for show. It's not for show. It's not, a, not about comparison and saying, well, look, I've, I've got this great prayer life. I go into my closet and I pray. and Oh, I, I spend 45 minutes every day in my quiet time. And it's not that. It's are you connecting to your heavenly father? And then Jesus, in, in chapter 7, as he brings this Sermon on the Mount to a conclusion, talks about relationships with each other, a relationship to our Heavenly Father. He does it with this compare and contrast. We talked about that last week. 
And now he finishes up with, there is a, a house built on the rock and a house built on the sand. And it all comes down to, are you doing what Jesus says to do? And I think it's easy. I think it's easy, particularly if you did grow up in church, to fool yourself. And say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. So let's just, let's just kind of take one of the things that Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount. I was teaching this life group of people who'd been Christians for a long time, and we were in the Sermon on the Mount, and we came to the part where Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Okay. Uh, what does it mean for us to love our enemies? And I just posed that, posed that question to the class, and, and, and the class debated back and forth about who was our enemy, and I said, okay, now, how do you do that? What, what are you doing to love your enemies? And, and one of the most mature people in the class actually spoke up and said, do you think Jesus was really serious when he told us to love our enemies? Now, folks, it, it, this is just my understanding, but if, it's, if Jesus says it, I think, I think he says it for a reason. And we're really supposed to love our enemies. Now, I know, again, you're church people, you don't have enemies, but you have people who annoy you, right? Anybody got somebody that annoys you? Don't point to them. So let's just check this out. I've got a scale. Yeah. So if hate is one and love is 100, I want you to think about a person that annoys you, okay? Everybody got that person? Got them locked in? Give yourself a grade on a scale of one to 100. How much do you love them? A couple of you are saying 100. Let's dive in and do a, do a deeper check. If you're at 100, that means you're actively working for the good of the people that annoy you. Now, by the way, praying for them that the that Lord change them so I can love them, that's not what it means to love. It's more like change me so I can love them. I thought about that. I thought about some people who annoy me, and I kept coming up with scores, and I mean, because I've been working on this this week, I've been coming up with scores like in the 40s. There's just some people that annoy me. Some of them are on television. Some of them are on social media. They just annoy me. And I got to remember, I got to pray for them. Love them. I've got some next steps. I bet you do too. So don't kid yourself. Now, why does this all matter so much? Because remember, the storms are going to come. And doing what Jesus says prepares your character for the storm that does come. Because let me tell you, the worst time to start trying to dig a foundation is in the middle of a storm. Right? Six weeks ago, I'm by my brother's bed as he is taking his last breaths. And it's amazing the, the stream of thoughts that just flood your mind. And one of the thoughts that legitimately flooded my mind or went through my mind was, Boy, I'm glad I'm not starting from scratch. I know my brother believes in Jesus. I know that his loss, losing him, is just going to be devastating. And I know that the Lord is my shepherd. And he will be with me in the valley of the shadow of death. His rod and his staff will comfort me. And I bet that if I could stop the sermon right here, several of you would spring up and you would say, you know, I've been through the storm. My spouse left me. My spouse cheated on me. 
I thought my world was over. But God walked with me. Some of you'd say, I've got, a, I've got a child that's an adult and I haven't heard from them in five years. Five years, it's breaking my heart. But God's walking with me. Some of you today, right now, you're saying, I got some medical tests that have come back bad. I don't yet know what the outcome is. But God's walking with me. It's tough. God's walking with me. Now, there's a second group of people, and I think we need to be honest about this, and if this is you, this is not a condemning or shaming thing, but let's just be honest. If you don't have a foundation on Jesus Christ and the storm comes, you tend to get angry. And often, you get angry at God, and you say, God, why'd you let this happen to me? I mean, you do realize it was six years ago, about this time, in October in 2015, we had the great floods. Some of you, you lost, you lost something. You lost your home. You lost possessions. You, your, your house was incredibly damaged. And it's as amazing to me as I talk to people during that time, how many people were saying to me, it's just stuff. I mean, they were hurting. Don't, don't get me wrong. But they, they, they had a perspective. It, like it wasn't their whole life. But there were some other people I talked to, and they were like, how could God let this happen to me? And I did want to say to a couple of them, well, why did you buy a house in the floodplain? I know that's not real empathetic. That's why I didn't say it. But you buy a house in a place that's in a floodplain because you think it never will flood. The storm will never come. It does come. And I want to spend the rest of our time just thinking about this. Never build until you know what will tear down what you build or destroy what you build. And I want us to think about it in terms of three areas of relationships. And the first area of relationship I want to talk about is friendship. What will destroy a friendship? Betrayal. Now, betrayal is more than just somebody stabbing you in the back. Betrayal is more than just somebody betraying a confidence or gossiping about you. Betrayal is when you count on somebody and that somebody is not there. Now, sometimes the reason that person is not there is because they are overwhelmed, and we understand that, but sometimes it's because they're toxic themselves and, and they're starting to alienate people. But sometimes you're the friend that needs to be there and you, you just say, no, I can't be there. I don't want to be there. And, and you're breaking a promise in a way. Now, not all friendships are equal, but I mean, we all talk sometimes about 3 a.m. friends and about you need friends who will be there for you at 3 o'clock in the morning. And again, if you'll permit me one more illustration about my brother, um, I, I just think about him so much these days. I've got a lot of stories that come to my mind. When uh, my father-in-law passed away, and he lived in Gaffney, and I called my brother to tell him, hey, Gina's dad passed away, and, you know, we're going to be here for a little while. And my brother, who's much more relational than me, he, he said, uh, do, we, do we need to come up there? No, Steve, don't, don't come. <laughs> it's 750 miles from Wachula to Gaffney, you know, and, and, and you can't do anything. Have y'all ever given this speech? You know, no, 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 no. He says, just stay. It's, just pray for us. Just pray for us. That's the church answer. 
Next night, he calls me and says, hey, Clay, what you doing? Well, we're just hanging out here at Gene's dad's house right now. I said, what are you doing? He said, well, we're kind of hanging out at the Hampton Inn in Gaffney. I said, you're kidding me. I said, well, we told you not to come. I said, I told you don't come. He said, when have I ever listened to what you said? <laughs> My brother knew how to be a 3 a.m. friend. That's why I miss him so much. See, friendship is best when promises are kept. Friendship is best when promises are kept. I love Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. See, I, I think that's what church ought to be. We ought to be a fellowship of 3 a.m. friends. Even if I don't really know you that well, we are brother, sister in Christ. I want to be there for you as much as I can. And, and I want to, to help you, I want to encourage you, and, and, and we can be a place of grace. We can all admit we've all got troubles, we all got stuff. None of us have it all put together. You know, every one of us at some point is going to have to go haul a dead cow out of our barn because we're not rich and we're not the religious elite. We're just people on a journey with Jesus. I think that's what church ought to be. I want to talk to you about a second kind of relationship, and that's relationship in families. What destroys family relationships? Me, not we. Me, not we. When, when people focus on the me instead of the we, that really is destructive. Now, I talked to you a few weeks ago, just real briefly, about something a researcher named John Gottman uh, has come up with he calls them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, that's not referring to the four horsemen in the book of Revelation. But it refers to four um, types of attitudes in a, in a relationship, whether we're talking marriage or family or even friendship, but we're really thinking about family right now that will really destroy the relationship. And when you hear these, these will make sense. The first attitude of the horseman is criticism, and that's what happens when you attack someone's character. And, and we do this. When, one of the clues that you're doing this are the words always and never. So you are always just thinking about yourself. You hear how that attacks someone's character? You never pay any attention to me. Hear, you hear that? These, these are messages of shame. And, and what it does is it automatically puts somebody on the defensive. And criticism, particularly parent to child, is devastating. It will set your child on a path that is not healthy and is not good. The second of the horsemen, the attitudes, is contempt. Now, contempt is when you assume a position of moral superiority. When you actually believe that you're in the right and the other person is in the wrong. When you do labeling. So when a parent, for example, says to a child, you're a loser and you'll always be a loser. Do, do you hear how that is contempt? Boy, and when you get this in marriage, it, 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 it is so toxic. 
um, Gottman says that contempt is the greatest single predictor of divorce. Now, there's a theological reason why contempt is wrong too because the Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So none of us is morally superior. And you cannot say to any member of your family, well, I am just morally better than you. And when you have that attitude, it is, it is corrosive. It is like acid on the bond in a relationship. The third of the horsemen is defensiveness. Now, I just want to own this. This is my go-to. You know, whenever there's tension in the relationship, I become defensive. And defensiveness is basically saying, yes, I've done wrong, but here's my excuse. I've done wrong, but there's a reason for it, so that makes it okay. Um, and the bad thing is I know this, right? You know, and I even work with couples and families about this. And so a couple comes in, and, 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 they will, and it's usually her. She'll usually say, he's the problem. He's the problem. Fix him. Well, let me just open my desk drawer and get out my fix the husband tools. You know, that, I don't got those. So what I often will do is I'll draw a circle, and I'll say, think about this circle as representing your marriage, your relationship, and yes, he's probably got a lot. Maybe he's got 90%. I don't know, but what percentage of this is yours? And inevitably, the person who's got the biggest complaint won't own they've got any responsibility at all. They would just rather blame. And so do you think that really builds intimacy? And, and, and hey, if you're a parent of a teenager, you're living with this weekly, right? Because weekly, your, 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 your teen probably comes in with some kind of attitude like, you are the worst mom in the world. You're the worst dad in the world, something like that. And you, wanna, you, you, you just want to start arguing with them, right? Instead of maybe sitting down and saying, hey, let's draw the circle. Let's say I am the worst dad in the world. What, what part of the pie belongs to you? That's one of the most important things a teen can learn is they're responsible for them and how they interact in a relationship. Let me, let me move on to the last one because I could just keep talking about these all the time. And, but with, there's some hope here coming. But the last one of the horsemen is stonewalling. And stonewalling is withdrawal. It's the silent treeple, treatment. It is when you say, hey, honey, is anything wrong? Nothing. Yeah, okay, that's stonewalling. It is, it is escaping, it's checking out, it's cutting the other person off. Abandonment is stonewalling. Divorce can be a form of stonewalling. And when you stonewall, obviously there's nothing going on. There's no connection. So how do you put family relationships on a firm foundation? Well, obviously there's lots of advice about this, but... but what the scripture actually teaches us is so simple and yet so hard to do. Families are best when we include Jesus. Now, now, don't get the wrong picture of this, okay? So when we talk about including Jesus, a lot of families will get the idea, okay, what this means is we're going to hold hands around the table and we're going to pray together. We're going to sing Kumbaya. Father is going to read us a Bible lesson and then all will sing a hymn together before the little ones go off to sleep and they will go to sleep and the angels will hover around their beds. No, that's not what we mean at all. 
Instead, Paul, in chapter 5 of Ephesians, when he talks about family life, starts out the whole section with this simple concept. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Which means, I want to be a good husband, not just because I want to be a good husband and I want my wife to stay off my back. I want to be a good husband because that's an act of worship. I'm going to show Jesus how much I love him by being a good husband. I'm going to show Jesus how much I love him by being a good wife. Not me being a good wife, but you get what I mean, right? I I want to be a good mom, a good dad, a good brother, sister. I want to be a good son, good daughter, because I love Jesus. That's a very simple concept, but that's really hard to do. What it does is actually it takes us back to what we talked about last week. It means in my family, I have to regularly ask, what is the will of my heavenly father in this family? I'm going to tell you, some of this is really pretty easy. It means I've got to forgive my spouse and my kids. I've got to know how to do that. It means I need to regularly check, is my love just something I say, or is it actually turning into behavior? I I go through periodically 1 Corinthians 13, and I grade myself in my family. So love is patient. How am I doing? Well, so far today, I'm doing real good because I haven't spoken to anybody in my family. Love is kind, means I want to serve. Love is never arrogant. Ooh, you hear how that goes to contempt? Or is I'm not just going to always assume I'm right? Love is never thoughtless. I've actually got to think, how's my behavior impact other people? Love is never rude, cutting people off. Just go down that list that you'll find in 1 Corinthians uh, starts about verse 4 and it goes down to about verse 10 and you'll get humble in a hurry. Last time I did this, I graded myself. I think I got like two A's, two B's, three C's. I got about four F's. And so I said, Lord, I look at these places where I'm just failing, so fix these people in my family. No, no, no. I had to look inside myself and say, there's, there's still room for me to grow. So how do you put your family on the foundation of Jesus? You make sure that Jesus is included. You're constantly asking, what is the will of my heavenly Father in this family? Now, let's talk about the most important relationship of all, your third relationship, and that's your relationship with God. What destroys your relationship with God? What's the storm that will destroy it? Indifference. Some of you thought it means that you give your heart to Satan. No, no, that's not it at all. See, indifference is what kills a relationship with God. It is saying, I'm going to live my life on my terms. I'm not going to take time to actually get to know my creator. I am going to simply assume that my knowledge, my wisdom is sufficient. It may come out when I say something, I'm going to... I'm going to worship my God, not the God of all these religions, or, or even all religions are the same, and so it's just a matter of being good. You hear how all of this is just saying, I get to make the rules, so I'm going to be indifferent to who God really is. I'm not going to think of God as a person. I'm going to think of God as some mystical force out there that I don't really have to deal with 
because it's just something nebulous instead of saying he is real, he's personal, and he's communicating with me. So you can't be indifferent to that kind of God. And when you think about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins and then coming back to life, this is God's great statement of saying, you can't be indifferent to this. You've either got to accept that this is real, that I sacrificed my life for your sins, and then I rose to give you power, or you can be indifferent to it and say, I'll get around to it someday. (coughs) Not too long ago, I had somebody come up to me and say, you know, Pastor, right now, it's just so busy. We're so busy as a family. We are just so busy. It's like, yes. In fact, I haven't talked to anybody in the last two years who's not busy. And, and they said, we just think that God understands we're so busy, and he understands that right now, we just don't have time. And I am thinking, no. You're dictating terms to God. I don't think that's right. And I'm not even equating that with, with church attendance or anything like that. I'm just saying, if there is a creator, and I believe there is, doesn't it make sense that that creator would know more about your life, know more about this world, and it would make sense to try to relate to him so that you can understand yourself and understand this world, especially as we understand our creator. He is a God of love and grace. And he has not come to condemn you, but to save you. We keep going back again and again to the verse that precedes chapter 7, Matthew 6, 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. What does that mean? It means you put everything in your life on the foundation of Jesus, and then you build. So if if you're at the age where you're dating, you start with Jesus, (laughs) you say, Okay, I, I can date this person, but I'm not really going to build a relationship with this person until I check and make sure this is on the foundation of Jesus. I, I, okay, we've got a kid now. We've got a one-year-old, but I'm going to make sure that we're parenting on the foundation of Jesus. Hey, hey, we're married now, and, and we've got teens, but we're going to make sure we're going to do this on the foundation of Jesus. Over and over and over, seek first. Put it all your life on the foundation of Jesus. doesn't mean the storms won't come. It just means when they do, your house is built on the rock. Have you ever noticed how often in the Psalms it says, the Lord is my rock? Can you just say this verse with me? The Lord is my rock. Well, is he? I think this is why we need to grow our character. And keep doing the hard work of of regularly examining our lives and making sure everything is resting on Jesus. And I think Jesus is leaving us with this simple question, so it's a question I want to leave you with, and that is, where are you building? Rock or sand? I know some of you say, can we build on the gravel? No, that's not an option. It's rock or sand. And Jesus says, Whoever hears these words of mine and does them is like the man who builds his house on the rock. Are you just listening to the words of Jesus or are you doing them? Rock, sand, your choice. Pray with me.
Heavenly Father. I think a lot of us fool ourselves and think that everything rests on Jesus when it really doesn't. So show us, show us, even in this quiet moment, in this next song, what really we need to put on the foundation of Jesus. And I want to pray for these relationships, friendships, families, marriages, but especially our relationship with you, that it would always rest on Jesus. And I pray, Father, for people who don't know Jesus and don't know the amazing grace of Jesus, his great love. And I pray, God, that today you would help them take that step across the line of faith and accept Jesus as Savior and Lord. Father, help all of us, not just to be hearers of your word, but doers and build on the rock. In Jesus' name I pray.